This is episode 76 of Beyond the Bulletin. Hello and welcome to episode 76 of Beyond the Bulletin. From the University of Waterloo, I'm Brandon Sweet, editor of the Daily Bulletin. And from Media Relations, I'm Pamela Smythe. On this podcast, we go beyond the pages and pixels of the Daily Bulletin to inform you about important news and views from our community. Coming up, Roderick Slavchev from the School of Pharmacy discusses his team's development of a COVID-19 vaccine in the form of a nasal spray. Thank you for joining us as we go Beyond the Bulletin. It's all the coyotes in my backyard again. Oh, yeah? They're getting skinnier. That means they're getting hungrier. Yeah. And the one actually looked in my window at me. It's like that Simpsons episode where... <laughs> the dog looks at Bart and his head just turns into a piece of pizza. Well, you see, I prefer uh, foxes because they're generally smaller and they look like they're wearing kicky boots. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what's been happening. January 28th was Bell Let's Talk Day, a campaign to raise awareness and combat stigma surrounding mental illness. Across the university, participating groups and individuals shared stories about mental health and highlighted the resources that are available. One story, shared in the Daily Bulletin, featured Waterloo student Avene Gentles, who spoke with University Relations about her struggles with mental health last year. A busy third-year faculty of health student, Gentles was juggling multiple responsibilities when her family was dealt an unexpected blow, her father's diagnosis with lung cancer. With her father off work and her mother solely supporting the family, Gentles took on a part-time job while continuing to manage volunteer and schoolwork full-time. With midterms and assignments on the horizon, stress levels were mounting. She contacted Campus Wellness and was relieved to secure an appointment within minutes of her call. That in-person session turned into follow-up phone calls once the pandemic hit. You can read the full story and watch a video clip of Avene sharing her story in her own words in the Daily Bulletin from January 28th. Another story presented as part of Bell Let's Talk Day featured Waterloo alumnus Sarah Chang, who stepped into the dragon's den with her five-year-old daughter. She pitched her small business called Bluish and ended up striking a deal with Canadian investor Arlene Dickinson. Cheng's entrepreneurial journey started with the birth of her first child named Summer, and with her second child on the way, she took the leap to leave her day job as an accountant to pursue her venture full-time. Her impactful story and beautifully crafted tutus touched Dickinson, who saw Cheng's venture as much more than an apparel company, but rather a platform for women to share their stories of new motherhood and postpartum depression without guilt or judgment. You can read the full story in the Daily Bulletin from January 28th, and we'll put a link to her appearance on Dragon's Den. Both my girls had their tutu phase, which was really cute. We put them in, you know, little, little pseudo dance classes when they were, uh, I don't know, in junior kindergarten or even, you know, daycare <laughs> age or something like that. Oh, uh, cute. Now, if you're dreaming of summer and where you might travel, if public health conditions allow, of course, perhaps think twice before packing your flip-flops. A University of Waterloo study has found that flip-flops have a tendency to flip right off your foot entirely during <laughs> slips in dry and wet conditions. I shouldn't laugh. a greater risk of injury. I shouldn't laugh because I'm a big faller and slipper. Yes, that's right, Pamela. You, uh, <laughs> you've definitely had uh, some slips and trips in your, in your life. I'm just picturing it, you know, with... Uh, Sound effects. Anyway. 
Researchers at the university partnered with 30 Forensic Engineering, a firm that specializes in forensic reporting, to better understand why slips and falls can happen, to better inform clients and the courts of the science behind injuries. Leah Tennant, a Ph.D. student in Waterloo's Department of Kinesiology, said the firm wanted to know how slips in flip-flops change if the foot is also wet, a scenario unique to open footwear and one that had never been documented, to their knowledge. The researchers expected to see more sliding of the foot within the flip-flop when the foot was wet, but they were surprised to find the flip-flop came off the foot entirely, or what they called decoupling, in both wet and dry conditions. According to Tennant, decoupling tended to happen most often when participants were slipping on the wet tile with a wet foot, but also on dry tile with a dry foot. If the tile was wet but the foot was dry, the team tended not to see decoupling happen as often. I think we need to diagram that out, Pamela. I think I've lost my train of thought on the subject. Well, we're flipping and flopping more than a politician in this case. Vice President at 30 Forensic Engineering, Rob Parkinson, said that the more data that exists to understand why an event like a slip and fall can happen, the more clients and courts can understand the science behind these costly injuries. You know, it's not just summertime. I mean, uh, that people, you know, walk on pool decks with them or at the shower at the gym Now, in other news you may have missed from the past week, the Safety Office has developed a home office ergonomic tip sheet that provides guidance on creating ergonomically correct home workspaces. If you're feeling a kink in the neck, you may want to take a few minutes to use the tip sheet and assess your home office setup and maybe take a quick stretch while you're at it. We'll put a link in our show notes, but also if you want more detail, why not check out the interview we did on Work From Home Ergonomics back in episode 39. Yes, it's uh, unfortunately still very relevant, as most of us or many of us continue to work remotely. Yeah, we're working from home a lot longer than I think any of us anticipated. That's true. Now, here's what's coming up. Nearly half a million Canadians are living with dementia, and that number will grow as the population ages. The Schlegel UW Research Institute for Aging received $2 million in federal funding to lead two national projects that will advance research and innovation to enhance the quality of life for people living with dementia and their care partners. First, the Dementia Knowledge Hub project will support collaboration and enhance the impact of community-based projects across the country funded under the Dementia Community Investment. The second initiative called the Dementia Surveillance System Project, will focus on enhancing the National System for Dementia data to improve our understanding of dementia and its progression. The Public Health Agency of Canada funded both projects. These projects will allow us to understand dementia in ways we haven't before and drive practice and policy change to support Canadians to live well with dementia. You can learn more about the Dementia Knowledge Hub and Dementia Surveillance System projects in the Daily Bulletin story from February 2nd. And just in time for Valentine's Day, the W Store has introduced a collection of limited edition gift sets guaranteed to spark joy. Whether it's a token of appreciation for your coworkers' hard work or a just-because mid-February pick-me-up for your team or for yourself, these sweet gift sets are sure to hit the spot. All of the Valentine's gift sets come wrapped in cellophane and ribbon with a Valentine's tag for easy gifting. There are five sets available as well as Valentine cards. You can shop the limited edition Valentine's gift sets and more at wstore.ca. And now the interview. Not long after news of COVID-19 hit, we heard about the race for a vaccine. There are a couple on the market already and more in development. 
One of them is different from the ones we know about and is the work of Roderick Slavchev and his team. Slavchev is a professor in Waterloo School of Pharmacy, and he's cross-appointed to chemical engineering. He tells Pamela why the nose spray design could prove to be effective against emerging variants of the coronavirus. Roderick, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. So you and your team are working on a DNA-based COVID-19 vaccine. What do you mean DNA-based? Uh, DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid. So it's uh, what essentially guides information for all of our cells and for us and all organisms. Um, so when we say DNA-based, what we mean here is rather than more conventional approaches by which vaccines are made using, for instance, proteins or viral proteins, in this case, those proteins are encoded on the DNA. And the premise of a DNA vaccine is to get that DNA into the targeted cells so that those cells can then express those genes on the DNA and then produce those viral coproteins, uh, which essentially constitute the, the vaccine. And why did you go that route? Well, there are definite uh, preferences toward going that route into targeting and generating the right type of an immune response. That way, we most closely mimic how a virus would actually infect the cell, whereby its genetic material would get into targeted cells, generate its own viral proteins, and thereby be those viral proteins would be expressed and generate the right type of an immune response. So we're essentially trying to mimic that same type of process, but doing so extremely safely. And you're not putting the virus into people. No, no, not by any means. Um, so in this case, it's, it's similar only in that we're using that genetic material to constitute some of the viral proteins, but none of the uh, genetic material of the actual virus itself, and thereby it cannot propagate in any way. So that makes it a much safer alternative. So other vaccines that are on the market, though, such as Pfizer and Moderna, are RNA-based. That's right. So ribonucleic acid is a different nucleic acid material um, that doesn't actually make its way to the nucleus of target cells and would express itself in the cytoplasm and thereby generate those viral proteins. So it's also a nucleic acid-based approach to vaccination, and uh, it is also um, highly, highly successful in that respect in generating those viral coat proteins. DNA-based vaccines are generally more durable. Um, but they would make themselves get themselves to the nucleus, whereby they would be expressed there and allow for a durable response of those viral coat proteins. Oh, now and something else that makes uh, the vaccine that you're developing different is it's a nasal spray. What are the benefits of having a vaccine as a nasal spray? One of the reasons why a nasal spray was chosen as the preferential route in this respect is for, for three primary reasons, actually. Um, one is because the targeted cells that we're trying to deliver that DNA to are the lower respiratory tract cells, the same cells that would be infected preferentially by a SARS-CoV-2 infection. So we're trying to mimic that infection, hence the name synthetic infection, which is a, the sort of driving paradigm of this vaccine approach. Um, the second reason is that the nasal tissue um, is very is very strong at generating the right type of an immune response, which would be preferential for an antiviral type response that we're looking for. And then the third reason, obviously, is that it, it's uh, it's non-invasive, and so there's obviously a you know benefit in that, and obviously hopefully that that helps individuals take it that might be a little bit more afraid of needles, etc. <laughs> well, I was going to say, do you think it might help chickens like me, who aren't <laughs> terribly keen to have a needle in them, um, get the vaccination because. Sometimes that might be a deterrent. Hopefully not, but it might be. 
I, I would hope that that does help. I can't see it as being an actual deterrent, but uh, you know, that, that is definitely one of the benefits, but not the actual driving reason behind it. We really want to get this material to the right cells. Um, and also we want to make benefit of the immune um, type of tissue that's present within the nasal tissue. Now, influenza, the flu shot that we get every fall, it's a needle and syringe. It, uh, we haven't seen it as a nasal spray. Is that something that you think we're going to be seeing then? It actually has been delivered as a nasal oh. spray in the past. Um, I, I wouldn't say that the majority of vaccines are definitely delivered that way, but as a respiratory uh, pathogen as well, that is uh, one approach that has been applied um, and is available. And the whole hope here is to generate a durable, uh, a cross-protective, and uh, the most pertinent type of an immune response that is you know, as protective as possible against SARS-CoV-2 and potential future variants of it. SARS-CoV-2 being another name for COVID-19. Well, actually, SARS-CoV-2 is the virus that causes COVID-19. So that would be coronavirus disease being COVID and 19 being the year 2019. So I have actually had that question as what happened to COVID-1 through 18? Well, we haven't actually had the diseases in those years, so that's why it hasn't been present. But So SARS-CoV-2 represents the second SARS virus. Right. Uh, but COVID-19 represents coronavirus disease in the year of 2019. Are there challenges with a nasal vaccine? Absolutely. I mean, there, there are challenges with any type of a vaccine or any type of a therapeutic. Um, for a nasal vaccine, although it may be non-invasive, the other problems that may come with it is how standardized its administration can be. Things like you know being congested or not taking it as properly as possible can limit the amount of material that gets in, whether or not the material makes it to, uh, to the target tissue. All of these are very relevant and can affect you know, how impactful the actual vaccine and how, how well it works. We are also testing as an intramuscular approach, which is far more typical, as you'd see, from more conventional approaches to vaccines. Right. With a nasal vaccine, I just think about myself with my flow nase. <laughs> you know, if you are like, if you are congested, you might not do it right. Or you, what if you have to blow your nose or you forget and you sneeze or something? Then what do you do? Do you take the vaccine again? Absolutely. And those are, those are definitely, you know, important considerations because in the end we need to standardize a dose. Um, and that, that becomes difficult when you have to consider those types of you know, issues. So now you started working on a vaccine quite early on. I remember hearing about this in the, I think it was last spring. What motivated you? Well, I was working with a few of my colleagues, and while I'm not focused on coronavirus or beta coronaviruses in my research specifically, we realized that we had all of the tools necessary to really dive in and to try to do something. And given the urgency at hand, and obviously the need for vaccine and one as quickly as possible, we thought that we have the, the ability to perhaps tackle this you know, right off the bat, get busy, get our hands dirty, and get right to work on it. And that's exactly what we did. Because it seems since the beginning, there was talk about a vaccine and how this is how we're going to be safe, as if we have a vaccine and enough people are vaccinated. And so there seemed to be this pressure and this constant demand in the media and elsewhere, politicians, elected officials saying we just need a vaccine. And it seemed to me like there was a real competition to be the first past the post, I guess you could say, with the vaccine. Is that realistic? It it, it is in some ways. Um, you have to look at this with the right perspective. First of all, there's a, an important urgency 
that arose as a result of, of COVID-19. So we needed to get a vaccine that was functional and protective out to the public so that we could protect globally uh, the public. Um, is there a race toward doing that? Yes, but I would say so that it was done in, in the right spirit. Um, this was a rich scientific time. Never in the history of the world has there been such rich um, dedication to vaccine development. So it's not only about getting a vaccine to market, it's also about looking at new paradigms that can drive the way that vaccines move forward, including ones like our own, and how this can then guide future and guide future protection against a variety of different pathogens. So there's a lot at work here. And uh, let me also add to that, that the speed at which a vaccine got to market um, with currently Pfizer, Moderna, and uh, now Johnson & Johnson, mm -hmm. this, is, this is unprecedented. Um, to have vaccines on a market one year after, you know, after urgency such as COVID-19 arose is just unheard of. I mean, vaccines generally take somewhere in the area of 20 to, you know, upwards of 30 years. And in some cases, they're still not successful. So this is, is rather revolutionary time for science in that respect. And I think what you'll see, and Moderna and Pfizer are great examples of this, are new types of vaccines that have come forward, which are also going to help us uh, combat future type of pathogenic infections um, with new types of paradigms such as those and including hopefully our own. What do you make of the fact that it only took a year to get a vaccine out there? Uh, it, it honestly blows my mind, but I think it's a testament to uh, how rather advanced and amazing we operate in the scientific field these days. Um, and this is uh, from a process perspective, something that continues to grow and continues to just get better and better as an engine that is going to, to better human health over time. So that part is, is really great to see. Um, and uh, and also, I think the part to it, which is which is really impressive, is the global collaboration that you saw at hand in doing so. This was really about everybody helping everybody, the sharing of information as globally as possible, aid across you know across borders as necessary to just get a solution to this. So it's really great to see you know from a global perspective such you know, such a united effort. Even once we have a vaccine right now, as we see on the market, that's, that's not the end of this. We need to continue to fund research into this because we're going to continue to see variants. We're going to continue right. to see new types, of, new types of diseases similar to this that uh, have a, a variety of different complications and important considerations that have to be addressed. So, as I mentioned, it's a rich time for vaccine development, but it's not quite over yet. Now, we do hear about em different variants, emerging variants from the UK, South Africa, etc. Does the vaccine that you're developing have an edge in that front? We hope so. I mean, this, of course, has to be empirically tested. Um, but there are different approaches and different strategies by which vaccines can be designed. And uh, the design of our own is definitely one that's developed to be more durable and cross-protective. If it works the way that we're intending it to work, then, then yes, it should be able to address variants, um, at least to, to a certain point. People are scared. I mean, there's different ways of looking at it. You know, a, a good comparison would be would be influenza. So, you know, we have, we have different strains that come out every year as a sort of influenza epidemic. And from that epidemic, we have three strains of, of influenza A, one strain of influenza B that go into every yearly vaccine. Mm. Uh, and it's a very conventional approach by which these vaccines are generated. 
and we get one year's worth of hopefully one year's of protection because they have some guessing that that's involved within this as well. Actually, Australia is really the one that guides us and determines what those strains are. Mm -hmm. um, but in the case of COVID-19, obviously, we don't know as much about the virus. That's one thing. And there are also different strategies around vaccine development. So in some cases, if we look at sort of uh, Moderna and Pfizer, they are highly specific for the original strain. And as such, they are highly targeted towards uh, producing protection against that strain. So as variants continue to genetically drift, um, they become less and less cross-protective. Other types of strains, and you'll see the same thing in influenza, might have multivariants, or they, they're actually um, based on multiple different components that have been seen over time from various influenza strains. And as such, they are far more sort of cross-protective and have more universal uh, application and perhaps don't need a yearly uh, yearly inoculation for, for individuals to be protective. What effect does it have on your work, though, the fact that there are already vaccines on the market? Like, is there still an urgency? Is it, um, does it have an effect at all sure. on, on the work that you're doing, the fact that there already are people getting other vaccines right now? Sure. I mean, uh, similar could be seen with, uh, with SARS. I mean, back in 2002, 2003, when we had a SARS issue, mm -hmm. there was a lot of funding that went into trying to deal with that situation at hand. And then once it seemed to just kind of die off, rather than studying it further and ensuring that we were better protected against another scenario, which, of course, is happening right now, yeah. um, the funding kind of dried up very quickly mm -hmm. in that respect. Okay. So hopefully we would have learned from that that perhaps, you know, we need to drive forward. And you do see that occurring now. I mean, we are not out of the woods with COVID-19 uh, at present. So you do see still a variety of funding trying to deal with the aftermath of COVID-19 and still trying to learn as much as possible about the virus um, that's causing it so that we can really have a much, much stronger understanding to be able to better protect against it. And not just for now, but also into the future. Who's working on this with you? Uh, at present, this was a collaborative effort, obviously, from, from my lab, and I was also working with Dr. Marco Coyne uh, from Chemical Engineering, and I'm working in collaboration with Metaphage Biosuticals, which is a company in Toronto, a small biotech company, which is uh, applying its own proprietary, what's known as mini-string DNA, for a very safe delivery uh, of a DNA approach for this vaccine. Hmm. And what happens now? It's interesting. When you look at the timeline of this, we're pretty much on track where we expected to be, um, although it seems like we're so far behind everybody. But uh, you know, we are, we are plugging along and getting the majority of the work done that we were expecting. We have a variety of other tests that have to be completed, and hopefully we'll then be able to, to move into the clinical stage. It does not seem like you're behind other people. It's apples okay. and oranges. And as you say, there are many in development, right? There are others still working on it as well. That, that is absolutely true. And like I said, I mean, we're going to be better as a society for all of the rich science that, that is progressing right now and a variety of very cool new paradigms in, in vaccine development that uh, are going to benefit us all. From my own perspective, it's really important to keep in mind, you know, when we're looking at 95% effectiveness for vaccines, others may be a little, little, bit, a little bit lower, like the J&J vaccines. Well, let's keep in mind that, you know, anything that's over sort of 65% effective in a case like this, where we had such a, a global urgency, is amazing. And give it the fact that it's only a year later since we even knew what COVID-19 was. Right. So the way that vaccines have progressed is really rather, rather amazing. And what we what we have learned from this and continue to learn um, will definitely drive and improve 
from a societal perspective, you know, health for, for all individuals. So it's an amazing time. There's no pleasing everybody. Some people are just going to be, you know, finding something wrong. Now it's, they found a vaccine too fast. It can't be safe. We have seen a very expedited approach through which we are getting through some of the, the regulatory um, approaches to, to get a therapeutic to market. But that does not change the the rigor with which each of those phases has to be conducted. We still have to address the safety concerns, and they are being addressed. Well, Roderick Slavchev, thank you so much for being here and for stepping up to help make us all safer. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, that about wraps it up for us this week. You can find all of our past shows and helpful links on SoundCloud.com. To ensure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe to the Beyond the Bulletin podcast wherever you get your podcasts and recommend us to your colleagues and Waterloo alumni. Remember to do your part to limit the spread of COVID-19 in our community. You can get in touch with us via email at bulletin at uwaterloo.ca. As always, thanks for listening as we went Beyond the Bulletin. There's a plane going over. Of that, I can hear. It's taking long enough. It's like that Twilight Zone episode. You know, Rod Serling at the end is like, if you hear, look up in the sky and hear a plane's engines and the engines sound like they're searching, send up a flare because the plane is caught in the Twilight Zone. <laughs>